Paul, have you managed to get hold of a ravening beast to protect the back entrance to the Something Who bunker? Absolutely. I've got it all covered. I borrowed one from that other podcast I'm on. Oh, the uh, the missing episodes one. I hope they aren't expecting any free advertising in return. No, no, no. Actually, I'm just hoping they haven't noticed he's missing yet. First missing episodes, and now they're missing a creature. What have you got? Is it a rill from Galaxy 4? <laughs> the rills, Richard, are intelligent creatures. You can't ask them to patrol the sewers. It's not a Varga from Mission to the Unknown, is it? Uh, not quite as deadly as that. Or as big. The octopus from the Underwater Menace. Uh, you're both thinking too laterally. A Highlander? It's Stevie, the Daegu. A giant Daegu. Wow. No, just just a Daegu. Isn't he a bit small? I uh, certainly hope his bite is worse than his squeak. No, well, actually, he's a herbivore, so you know you probably won't get any worse than a nasty nip. Great. The bunker is wide open. Hmm. I've got an idea. Which is bigger, Richard or Stevie? Uh, Richard, obviously. But what if I put Stevie right, right here in front of your face? It's still Richard. Only now my nose is getting nibbled. But Richard looks smaller. Well, that's because I'm further away. Exactly. So if you could keep him exactly that distance away and also have him here, then Stevie would be bigger. That's silly. Not as silly as running off with Stevie. I'd better take him back, hadn't I, before he's missed. I'll see if I can get hold of the Ogrons. So today I'm joined by Paul. Hello. And an exciting moment in podcast history. We have Giles. Hello. Uh, how nice to speak to people in the outside world. Indeed. And special guest, uh, I hope you're listening to that, Tim. Um, you're on a recording with Giles for the first time. <clears throat> Imagine all the people <laughs> living. Oh, are we not? I thought we were doing that. Hello, hello, <laughs> listeners. Hello, something here. Uh, hello, Tim. Hello, Giles. Giles, hello. it's amazing. Yes, yeah. Just don't, don't, don't get too close. We'll short out the time differential. <laughs> Indeedy, indeedy. How, uh, Giles? Um, I saw you on the television. Ah, yes. Oh, it was ridiculous, your episode. There was a, a, a young lady on there, and she was getting, how do you spell cat? <laughs> 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 it's not her fault, but I thought you did superbly well, Mucker. Uh, so, so well done. I thought it was a, a really yeah. good performance. Ah, yeah, it's, it's the luck of the draw, but it's the, the only thing that's slightly great is that any other year they'd have, um, until now, they've had like, the highest place runners-up going through, and now they suddenly decided to make it sudden death, so... No Ooh. second chances. Uh, well, hard lines, but well done. Congratulations. Yeah. Very, yep. very good. Well done. It was fun. Yeah. And, and you're always mastermind on this podcast. No. <laughs> I'm not sure oh. about that. And, and Richard, I understand I've heard on the grapevine that you've perfected your Toby Haydock impression. <laughs> it, it, it was astonishing uh, for uh, an hour and 13 minutes. Yeah, yeah. you'd, you'd never know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's out, is it? That's 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 out and live and available to listen. Yeah, well, by the time I've edited this one, it, not only will it have been out, but it'll have been forgotten, I expect. <laughs> 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 but yes, no, as we speak, it's uh, it, it, it's it's doing reasonably well, and uh, and I hope that that by later in the week it'll, it'll have uh, caught on like wildfire. But we, you do, as we've established, have a, a unique selling point for this episode. It's not just another edition. It's Burrows and Sparrow together. For the first time, they said it couldn't happen. They said it shouldn't happen. But <laughs> <laughs> we did it anyway. We're also recording on the 100th birthday of Patrick Troughton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, of course, we've 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 uh, com- specially engineered by complete accident. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Be- because because Tim was busy yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's, that's rather a nice touch, isn't it? It is. Mm. And Richard, perhaps I thought it would be a good opportunity as this is a sort of lockdown podcast that you perhaps could reassure the listeners of what happened first time round in 1918. <laughs> 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 Sorry, are we allowed to do uh, old, old jokes anymore? Uh, I don't know if that's allowed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, my, my, my grandfather certainly was alive um uh, although sadly not any longer um through 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 that uh, particular epidemic but uh, but yeah um, there's, a fan- family <coughs> there's a fantastic um thing on iPlayer Christopher Eccleston narrating the uh, I can't remember what it's called the, the flu that killed 50 million or something yeah, um, right. but I watched that a couple of days ago and it's vaguely doctor whoish mm. it's got mm. Christopher Eccleston in and some doctors <laughs> <laughs> so it's still on topic. Mm. Mm. Do you want me to unplug yet? I'll go. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this is more of a support group to the podcast, I think, <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, so bear with us, listeners. So, so uh, the faceless ones, uh, the animation of which came out what about a week or so ago. Ah, um, yes. I think it dropped through my letterbox about then. Um, so, so what I've done, uh, possibly controversially, is I watched the extant episodes one and three, and then I watched animation for everything else. I'm afraid that I couldn't bring myself to watch animation of episodes that actually existed. Oh. Um, so, so that's what I've done. So I hope I haven't missed very much. I mean, uh, four episodes of animation, I think I've probably got a flavour of it. Well, indeed, and they gave you the options to do it any which way you wanted, didn't they? You could watch it with the extant episodes incorporated, or you could watch it all animated, or black and white with the yes. extant ones. And it was it was the full um, the full options allowed. They've overcompensated for the macro terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so suddenly, frippery is all over the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a recon on there as well? There is an original. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ah, good. I'll have to try that. Yeah, and almost as if they were having a pop at uh, people not so heavily involved in this production. They kept saying about how faithful they were to the original, and there's a, a <laughs> there's a a, a a pretty good extra on there with with the making of the animation, and they they keep talking about how faithful they are to it. Yeah, and Anne Marie Waterface has a, a a big track on the shelf behind her, so I was impressed with that. That was worth going Steelbook for alone. <laughs> Do you remember the big track? You had one at your school, probably. Ooh, yes. I only know what you're talking about because I saw you tweet a picture of it. Oh. <laughs> I had a big loader. 
But yes, big track. I remember. I couldn't afford. No, one of completely those, different. No, completely I didn't different. have one. I remember lusting over it. I had to wind up evil. I had to wind up evil can evil. It's the best I could mm. do. <laughs> anyone, remember, anyone remember that? If we're doing, yeah, I do. Kids' I toy nostalgia. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had yeah, a stretch yeah. Armstrong. Ooh. I didn't. Ooh. I didn't. <laughs> so, so what did they call that particular feature then, Tim? Was it uh, excisions? Not on your Nelly. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> they didn't try to compensate for Macro Terror by adding in extra bits of comedy business. Inventing <laughs> <laughs> brand new. <laughs> <laughs> Custard uh, pies flying yeah. through the air in the background. <laughs> <laughs> no, face to face with the faceless ones. So I realised on seeing this that I had I'd only watched, I think, episode one the once, which was probably when Lost in Time came out. Episode three I saw probably a couple of times at the Panopticon convention in 87 when it and Evil came back. And probably also on Lost in Time. And it's in awful shape, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, it's kind of um, a bit sad, really. Yes. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't checked it recently, but I think you're, I must have I've seen it for the first time on Lost in Time. Because they're quite ingenious at um, fixing these little gaps, aren't they? Like the end, the way they yeah. fix the end of Airlock is, is very clever, and you wouldn't know. Mm. But the same can't be said here. They've, there's so many bits missing. And I think... the specific choice they made back when they fixed it for Lost in Time to zoom in on certain bits of footage yes. doesn't really work, does it? I was hoping they might have another, another look at it for this, but um, I guess they ran out of time. Or maybe there is yeah, literally nothing. Like dollar short. Mm. I think it, was not, it wasn't what they were doing, so, so they, you know, we were probably lucky that they bothered to stick it on there at all. <laughs> well, mm. Yeah, bizarre, isn't it? I was very disappointed when they didn't restore it, but I appreciate it's not what they're doing. The focus is the um, the focus is the the animation. Mm. Well, I can only assume that um, that our expert restorer is is working on something else. <laughs> so, moving on, I guess to some of these features that have that have turned up on the Blu-ray. So, so I suppose yeah. you know my perspective is. I was fortunate enough to to buy the season twelve one when it came out. I didn't have a Blu-ray player, so I was sort of undenied. But I thought, no, this 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 looks worth having a crack at. So, mm. so I, so I, I bought into the range. I guess Excellent. one of the ones I wanted to, t- to to talk to you about it wasn't on that first Blu-ray, but it was the the weekend with Waterhouse because I think that's I think yeah. that's interesting because you know Matthew Waterhouse is possibly the most maligned actor in all of um, classic <laughs> Doctor Who. Oh. Uh, you know, but of course, yeah. you know, also one of us, you know, uh, 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 you know, massively enthusiastic about Doctor Who. Perhaps that's why he was so hated at the time, because you know, everyone's thinking, well, why, why isn't it me on the screen? But I thought that's that, that's an it's an interesting approach. So, so I suppose a, a a couple of things spring to mind. One, I suppose, is what's the what's the creative process between Toby in the front of uh, uh, and you behind the camera, and then also how did you go about thinking of, uh, about what to do with Matthew to to sort of tell his story? Yeah, well, it was quite interesting. Towards the end of the DVD range, I started working a lot with Toby Haydock. Yeah, and I feel like we did three docs towards the end of the DVD range, which were there was one called Looking for Peter about Peter yeah. R. Newman. And then one uh, with John Levine, Living with Levine, where we kind of took Louis through weird weekend format yeah. and said, you know, we're going to send Toby to spend some time with John. And then we did uh, Haydock versus Havoc as well, all about all about the stunt team uh-huh. from the Pertwee years. And I think we all felt, everybody working on 
has thought, oh, we've really hit a level of confidence and production values, uh, which is great. And, and then the DVD range ended because we'd run out of <laughs> stories no, to release. So like, oh, well, I guess that's it then. We won't do any more of these. And then it was quite a surprise when we t- started talking about Blu-ray, about Blu-ray releases and, I, you know, a very exciting surprise. And so one of the first things I knew I wanted to do was to continue making things with Toby. I think Toby's terrific uh, as a as a presenter because you know on a basic level he's got he's got the knowledge that he can deal with any Doctor Who situation, and I don't need to feed him very much at all, you know, because he knows he knows the stuff back to front. Yeah. But I think what Toby underestimates himself is Toby is amazing with people. Yeah. And and will put people at their ease and get the best out of them and be generous. And he's a great listener. And so that makes him a great telepresenter. So I was very, very keen to get Toby back on board. And the first thing we did together was on the season 18 box set, which was uh, I pitched. I said, let's continue that kind of weird weekend format and see if Matthew Waterhouse would do one. And I always said, let's do one called Weekend with Waterhouse. And it'd be really fun. You know, I think I really like Matthew. I I think that Adric as a character is quite Marmite and is a character Mm. who's been controversial over the years. Some people, you know, really, really love Adric. And 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 some people hate Adric and and I and I think a lot of it is uh, on both sides. It's because we can see ourselves in him as a character because yes. he is a nerd on screen, uh, and we're probably reflected more in him than we are in Romana or in <laughs> Liz Shaw or something like that. You know, yeah. and and so we kind of see parts of ourselves that we like and parts that we don't like. And and I think Matthew has always been quite an enigmatic kind of figure. His autobiography is quite interesting yeah. and, and reveals some, some really hard things he's been through in his life. But it's also all written in the third person, hmm. which I always thought was quite an interesting choice. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be lovely to get to know Matthew? And, and we so we approached Matthew. And initially, I, I went to see him. I went down to Hastings and sat with him in his in his front room, surrounded by all of his DVDs and books, mm-hmm. uh, and that, which I was obviously very interested in, going, oh, this is great. And, uh, and Matthew was quite reticent. To, to do the film I think he could kind of he thought maybe you know is this going to be a send up or is this uh, are these nice people or whatever yeah. and you know I very much wanted to reassure him that, that the film was would be driven by him you know that the film would be hopefully an encapsulation of his personality and his uh, perspective on the world and, and we weren't there to have an agenda mm-hmm. about any of that we just wanted to catch him at his best and see what, what, what it was like to get to know him as a friend and I I think he he took a big uh, a big deep breath and decided to do it, which was fantastic. And then you know, uh, putting together the film, we have to have a plan going into that kind of weekend because yeah. we need to be able to sure. access the locations. We can't just it's very hard just to pitch up and say, <laughs> oh, can we film here yeah. without being told no quite a lot. So we had a plan which we talked through with Matthew and you know trying to get to the heart of. I thought Hastings would be a wonderful, interesting location yeah. that I wasn't that familiar with. And his life is very much in Hastings. You know, he uses that town. He uses all the, all mm. his favourite bits of that town, and he's very involved in that community. Uh, so we just grew it out of the things that he loved. So it was grown out of his his library at home, out of his love of jazz, out of his love of of, of the seaside there, and and uh, and his his husband Tim, and so mm. on. You know, so that was all that was all very natural, and it didn't take a lot of brainstorming to think mm. that's the way to do it and then so that's me really working to give the film a framework of I hope we will go around and, and visit these places and maybe address these themes and topics but then then it's very much open to Toby 
to kind of improvise and and for Matthew just just to see what happens between the two of them and to be honest the more I can shut up once we've got a like a shot set uh, the more I can shut up and let them just be and not be directed hopefully the more interesting it'll, it'll be the more natural it'll be so that was mm. a really nice weekend and we had lovely lovely weather uh, and yes. Matthew was very I thought I thought comes across great in that film and I think it changed I hope it changed a lot of perspectives on him when people watched it that he came across quite yeah. quite unpretentiously and quite charmingly as a, a passionate person you know and and, and a, a fan you know a fan of the of genre not just of Doctor Who but of the genre science fiction and fantasy and all that stuff and and the original Batman series <laughs> and, you know I think people were most people yeah. seemed most interested to kind of be voyeuristic about his DVD collection, and I'm I'm all for that. I think you can tell a lot of, about people through their library at home. So uh, he certainly has a, a pretty good library, yeah. and 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 he was he sent me a message afterwards to say that him and Tim had watched the film and they loved it. You know, you know. So that was that was really nice to think yeah. he took a, a chance on us, and he was happy. I think to have done that. Yeah, yeah. So so I think it, I think it is a really warm film. I, I agree with you. I think Matthew comes across really well, and I think also. There doesn't seem to be any any side or front to him. I mean, it, it it feels like you've you've managed to put him at ease, and he is just being himself. And I, and I think that's you know that that's also quite interesting and 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 attractive to watch. So so yeah, I, I think you know job done with that definitely. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. And I think a lot of that's Toby. A lot of that is that sense, you know, that he he can just quite magically, I think, in a very sincere way. I don't think he does this as a trick or anything, but he he can just put people at ease like mm. that, and then it means you can build a film very nicely you can build it around that relationship definitely and and we'd love to do more of those they're kind of the trickier ones to pitch because <laughs> they're not for everybody <laughs> you know and and i completely respect that that for some people private life is private and mm. and i guess I, I i always kind of say say we'll look at the films that we've made like that uh these aren't i don't think they are invasive films i think they're films mm. that can really celebrate and kind of say something different to often the things that people have been asked to talk about at conventions over and over again, that that that, that we can see, we can talk about something else, you know, because there's not actually that much talk about Doctor Who in in the Waterhouse mm. film, you know. So we'd love to do. I've got a few people that I have in mind that I'd love to offer that to for future box sets, mm. and fingers crossed we'll get to do that. So today we've got a full house of contributors. And returning to the podcast is Andrew Ireland, creator of the University of. Uh, well, let's try that again. <laughs> creator, <laughs> creator of this University of Central Lancashire's remake of Mission to the Unknown. Hello, Andrew, and welcome back. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Excellent. It's also a year since our first podcast of Something Who. Yeah, it only feels like about twelve months to me. Wow, time has <laughs> flown. <laughs> But anyway, down to business. Invasion of the Dinosaurs to start off with. So that's the one with the terrible puppets. <laughs> but of course, it's it, it's much more than that. It's season 11. It's towards the end of Pertwee, written by Malcolm Hulk, directed by Paddy Russell. And it's got some great elements in it. Deserted City, Double Agents, an underground bunker. Giles, this was your pick. Do you want to tell us uh, why you picked it? I guess I picked it just because living in central London and occasionally cycling to nearly abandoned supermarkets in the middle of the city in order to combine my mandatory exercise hour with getting to shopping. I was cycling back past the Tower of London you know, one, one morning 
and thought, bloody hell, this is just like Invasion of the Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, yes, that was the inspiration, if you can call it that. Very good. So who wants to start us off with some thoughts about Invasion of the Dinosaurs? I was going to be bursting with things to say if I'd actually written them in notes down while I was watching it. <laughs> I was very excited. It was much better than I remembered it being, which is not to say I ever thought it was a duffer. I think even from the first time... I think when I was younger, the, the fan opinion... We, we've talked about these fan opinions before, haven't we? Mm. Mm. Yeah, the gunfight has been the worst story ever and all that sort of thing. <laughs> I think it was very badly thought of, but not, not in my experience. But this time I was very impressed with it. I'm not going to say anything about the... Um, deserted London aspects. I just think as a six-part Doctor Who story, it's one of the tightest I've seen. Mm. Um, mm. That's what I want to say. Mm. The six parts have a reputation for being oddly constructed, don't they? They tend to either mm. have a, a slump in the middle or a bit of a, a bump at the beginning or end. But here, Malcolm Hulk has, I've tend to say for once, he's got enough material to fill his six parts. He's, he's got more ideas than he needs, really. Mm. And he paces them out. He keeps bringing in new ideas as we go along. There's no need for any f filler um, or padding. There's no, <laughs> none of this locking up, running down corridors, escaping, getting captured again stuff. It's just it paces its mysteries, keeps adding new mysteries rather than quicker than it solves the existing ones. And I just found it a thoroughly entertaining six times 25 minutes. So mm. that's what I think. Okay, Andrew? I think it's got a lot going for it. I think the thing which sticks in my mind the most is Mike Yates, because I think I'd almost go as far as saying that what happens to him and his character in this episode, or set of episodes, is uh, like the first time in the series, really, we got a real genuinely sort of surprising twist of a character mm. that we've known up until that point. Yeah. So I think it's multi-layered and, you know, his character is definitely like three-dimensional and probably one of the first examples you can think of in Doctor Who of a character going through that kind of arc, if you like, which continues into Planet of the Spiders 2. So for that, I think it's very memorable. And also the setting, I think it's eerie, atmospheric, and it sells the concept of a deserted London well. Hmm. So, yeah, good. Thumbs up from me. I think what's interesting about that Mike Yates reveal is that it, it works particularly well because we've known him for so long and it, and it really pays off the five years of this unit family. By this point, I think some people were uh, starting to criticise the cosiness of the unit years, how it's all got a bit ill-disciplined and long-haired compared to season seven action heroics. But <laughs> because we've got to know these as people rather than just as soldiers and plot devices it really does hit home doesn't it when one of them turns out to have opinions and moral conflict mm. i was going to ask yeah yeah i was going to ask i mean does it come out of um, nowhere for mike or has he shown these sorts of instincts before i was thinking the green death would have been a good place for him to surface if he has shown any sort of ecological tendencies does anyone remember yeah he's a he's a sort of perennial full guy almost isn't he? he's always getting knocked out and captured and then he gets brainwashed in the green death and in <laughs> the green death he was surrounded by ecological issues mm. wasn't he so maybe yeah. that, that sowed some seeds even before that in day of the daleks and he takes a glass of wine from joe grant doesn't he snuffles that down <laughs> still still spends some sandwiches yes exactly <laughs> 
Yeah, but I, I think people used to, you've reminded me of something there because I don't remember him commenting specifically on the ecological side in of the Green Death. I don't remember him um, mm. expressing yeah. sympathies with no. with the people at the Nuthatch. That's it's, that's all Joe Grant's side of the story. But people used to say fans used to read this as uh, his actions in Invasion of Dinosaurs are a follow-on from him being brainwashed by the computer in Green Death. But I don't think there's any... Is there, are there any hints? Is there anything remotely explicit about that? I think that left him... That probably let... If he's, someone's been brainwashed, that might leave them susceptible to influences and someone might have got inside his head and sold him this, this golden future and, and the golden age. Yeah. Well, maybe... It, it, I think it cheapens it to think that, really. I think it's much mm. better for him as a character to think that he actually made his own decision, mm. you know, and for his own reasons got sort of sidetracked or swept along by all that Operation Golden Age stuff. Mm. I, th- I think he did. When it was first introduced in episode two, and in fact, I am going to now mention something that's relevant to the theme. He's commenting on how the deserted Lon- in the deserted London, yeah. the sounds of birds, nature's returning, the birds' oh, songs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's a nice little moment. And, and it's quite subtly yeah. written, because if you don't know where it's going, mm-hmm. you not, it's not a big red flag that Mike, there's something up with Mike. You just think, yes, interesting mm. perspective. What a thoughtful, intelligent mm. chap. Mm. And of course, we're all thinking that at the moment, aren't we? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I'm thinking perhaps um, Terence Dix might have stuck something in one of his you know monster books or something like that or maybe one of the novelizations to suggest a link up but i i can't see it in the story that could that mm. could explain it couldn't it so rather than being a complete invention by fans perhaps it's um yeah from the ancillary material yes it feels like something that was stuck at the back of my mind that there was more of an explicit link i must have mm. picked it up from somewhere mm. but as andrew says it, if it's there at all i'd rather it was um wasn't used as a a blanket explanation for Mike. I much prefer mm. the idea that he's did mm. have this wistful soul hiding down there. And it's interesting that, that actually, through the course of the story, he's dragged in in it bit by bit, isn't it? I mean, to start off with, he's he's acting from the best of motives, and he's just, you know, disabling the the thing to stop the the dinosaur being sent back. And then bit by bit, he gets dragged further and further into the mire by by the other people in the organisation. Mm. Yeah, tragic, in a way. Mm. That's drama, conflict. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I always enjoyed, well, I, I saw this story when it was broadcast, and one of my favourite memories was that Tyrannosaurus being chained down in the aircraft mm. hangar and then menacing Sarah and smashing up the office. That was that was really good. That was very memorable. Um, it worked much better when you just saw parts of the dinosaurs rather than standing up and wobbling along streets but the, mm. the, it's not too bad at all if that if that doesn't stand up to screen there are other things like i don't know whether they called it this but the time scoop and all of those time effects those are very clever mm. Mm. um there's plenty of action and excitement and good cliffhangers and the one that really had me on my toes all the way through it was would anyone at the unit base dare to ask sarah jane to make a cup of tea or a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> And in the end, the RT operator had to make everyone around a tea. But uh, mm. it's a cracking um, Liz Slade and Sarah Jane story as well. She's really strong all the mm. way throughout that story. And, yeah, uh, she does it. She does a great job. Mm. I think the scenes where she, where uh, like you say, where the where the T Rex is um, 
is chained down in that warehouse place, whatever it is. I think that they work really well. And actually, even though people take lots of pop shots at the um, the poor old dinosaurs, you know, there's some nice close-ups there of like the mm. dinosaur lying there with his eyes closed, opening and closing again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's well done. And like you say, it works better when you see parts of the dinosaurs or glimpses mm-hmm. and they're not waddling along, but they're still. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's ambitious. And it just mm-hmm. does it, you know, it, it just tells the story and it gets on with it. And it, it, yeah. it's it's big and bold, which is good. And Doctor Who is always good when it's big and bold. It doesn't mm-hmm. always quite reach what it's trying to do. But in a way, that mm. doesn't matter because mm. you know it's reaching for it. So you can, yeah. you can reward and savour the ambition. If we move on, then the next one that, that I had a look at was Looking for Peter. Yes. So, so again, uh, Chris mentioned this as as one of his earlier films that was a bit different uh, in the range. Uh, I mean, it's got a it's got a very warm feel to it, and I think also, I mean, of interest to fans. I mean, I, I think everyone who's a fan gets to the point where you, you kind of know everything you're going to know about Doctor Who itself, but but you realise that there are actually other angles and other things to find out. And that's a lovely exploratory piece. I mean, I, I mean, I I don't know how much of the way it rolls out on the screen is artifice, and how much of it is, you know, that's exactly how how you found it and researched it. But but it's it, you know, it's a very interesting film. No, that's exactly how it happened. I mean, I, it remains, I think, my favourite simply because of of sort of what it stands for, and it is it it is genuinely one of the few documentaries on a Doc Two DVD where we actually found out something that nobody up until that point knew or, you know, nobody in the world of Doctor Who writing and research mm. knew. And I I mean, by this point, I didn't think I'd been making any more stuff for the range because I'd done, because I'd done one called Robophobia for a chap called Richard Hitman, who I'd, uh, Higson, who I'd got to know and was a nice guy. And he asked me to present one and I was already doing commentaries by that point and thought they were my thing. So I, my thing. So I did this one called Robophobia, which is a bit of a sort of jokey filler. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's nice because it gets me on screen. At least I can say I've, I've done one in the flesh. Yeah. And it was nice of R- Richard to ask me. And then Ed Stradling got me to do one on Resurrection of the Daleks. And it was simply because that was an actor one and he needed to do something that was easy to edit because he'd got a big job on this other big documentary he was doing for the range. Yeah. So he went, well, if, if Toby just interviews five actors, they're easy to edit because you don't have to keep chopping forwards and backwards. You chop one interview, you chop the other interview. Yeah. You chop. So got so it. I was I was there to make it easy for him. I, <laughs> I knew it, I, I knew Ed socially, but he'd you know he tended to get quite highbrow presenters for some of his stuff, like Sean Lay and Matthew Sweet, because they're you know proper professional. And, and and Ed likes the sort of doing the sort of political stuff, mm-hmm. and they're both presenters who know the political background of things. So I, I thought those are very much of anomalies. And then when Chris joined the range, I didn't know Chris. So there was this new guy who was suddenly on the range, and I thought, well, that's it for me then, because there's this guy I don't know from Adam, and he doesn't know me. So, you know, he's going to have his own people. And we, we met up about something, and I can't, he asked to meet me. Uh-huh. And so that's how we got to know each other. And, and I think he asked, you know, he asked if I had any ideas for the range, and I did. I had the idea that we should for the censor rights where we weren't going to get a very interesting making of because mm. all the actors were ancient or dead yeah. and we'd got all we'd got everyone that was available pretty much on the on the commentary yeah. so you didn't want to recycle that i used to hate it when the commentary and the documentary <laughs> yes. had the same people on yeah and i said why don't we do a, a who do you think you are 
but because the writer and the director uniquely were both dead before Doctor Who fandom got organised. So yeah. Mervyn Pinfield, who directed the first four episodes, and Peter Newman, who wrote it, were both dead before mm-hmm. Doctor Who fandom could interview them. I knew Pinfield's son was about, but other than that, he was still a bit of a mystery man of, of Doctor Who. Mm. Nobody knew that much about him. And Peter Newman, nobody knew anything about him. Yeah. And I, I pitched that to Chris, and he said... Yeah, although there's been some stuff about Mervyn Pinfield recently and a little bit more stuff had crept out. And he said, why don't we just, and this was the right call, why don't we just concentrate on the one guy, on the Peter R. Newman? And then I I had to sort of take a step back because, and as you asked, you know, how much did we find out in real time? I didn't really know any of what was going to happen because I had to find it out. Yeah. as we went along. Sure. And, and Richard Bignall, you know, did a lot of the behind-the-scenes yeah. beavering way. And we actually cancelled the documentary, but with about a week to go, Chris said, look, we've not found anything. I don't, I don't think this can happen. We might have to do a Talking Heads making of. So I emailed Richard and said, oh, I understand you've been looking and you've drawn a blank. Thanks for trying. And he went, I've got one more avenue. <laughs> it's, it's not quite dead. And I went, oh, okay, brilliant. Yeah. And then it was back on. Right. And Chris, Chris sort of came around and, and told me, where we'd be heading and what we'd be doing and say, you know, we're going to go to this record space and we've got... And, and, I, and I knew that there were that were relatives alive that I would be speaking to. I didn't know about the voice recording. No, uh, no. Uh, and, and that was genuinely the first time. It's the bit I hate of the film. I say wow twice and I have a very Shropshire O of a vowel. So I go, <laughs> I go, and I hate the way I say wow and I say it twice. Uh, what a pathetic, what a bad piece of presenting that is to use the word wow. What a, what a, what a naff word and I say it twice. That's a really key moment. But anyway, so but that, that's because it was live. It was, yes. uh, he gave me this thing, played it in the thing. But for what, again, what it stands for in the range Instead of going, let's just get people who clearly don't remember it to go, oh, it, it, it was marvellous. Because uh, I, I did the commentary on that, and it was the longest two and a half hours of my life. <laughs> and uh, and we got a lot of people on it, but none of them remembered it. <laughs> and, and for what it stands for, and the fact that we solved a mystery. I mean, yeah. it's, it's sad. Time won't be kind to it, because now on Wikipedia, on, on, on IMDb, of course, as soon as it's out, some... Blooming internet gremlin goes, oh, I'll update. I, I, I think you'll find I'll put that in correctly. Uh, and so, so you know, people watching it now uh, will have been able to find out that information, but that information wouldn't be there if it, if it weren't for, yeah. you know, what we'd sort of d- dug out. And we got his face and we got yes. his voice and we got his sister and we got his, his, his knee. And, uh, yeah, I'm really pleased with that one. And I think it's a sweet, it's a sweet thing to have done. Yes. Yeah, and and I think I think it works brilliantly. I mean, t- to be honest, it it wouldn't matter to me a jot if all that was were out on the on the internet now, because you know fundamentally, you know my my fan knowledge is probably stuck in the sort of eighties or nineties. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't know anything about him, and and, and I find it out by by looking at the um, documentary. So that's great. Oh, good, good. And, and because it was it was actually something that I'd, had been my idea and I'd been quite proactive about. So because because you know with the commentaries I just turned up and did the ones that they they asked me to do. So yeah. so to have actually had a piece. But again, because that was my idea and of course I was going to present it. I thought, well, that'll be that. That's the that's that's a that's a, the last one. Everyone I do, I sort of think of as being the last <laughs> one because I can't think they'll ha- possibly have an idea a, a reason to employ me again. Hmm. But uh, I've I've. I've done quite a few last ones. I'm quite lucky. Do 
Tell your fortune, sir. The future predicted, your life foretold. Oh, oh, no thanks. Don't you want to know if you're going to be happy? Well, I'm, I'm happy right now, thanks. You're from Yorkshire. The reading's free for Yorkshiremen. Oh, now you're talking. All right, then. Oh, fascinating. I can see a man, a most remarkable man. How did you meet him? You're supposed to tell me. I see the future. Tell me the past. When did your lives cross? It's sort of complicated. I joined a forum to talk about missing episodes. Long story. Hmm. But what led you to become a podcaster? All sorts of things. Being a fan, coming from Yorkshire and liking the sound of my own voice. This podcast of yours, something who, what choices led you there? There was a choice, because I was already appearing on the Grumpcast. But there was this other idea. Some friends on the forum. Paul, he's called. Paul Morris? He writes audio dramas for Big Finish. Very rarely mentions them. I'm on a podcast. As a guest? This will be your own podcast, Richard. With at least several listeners. People know the Grumpcast. It's fun. So stop it. Your life could have gone one way or the other. What made you decide? I just did. But when was the moment? When did you choose? It won't take long. Just click right. Chat with Paul. I'm clicking left. If you don't like it, hang up. If you click right, you'll have a podcast, not just a guest slot. You think I'm so useless. Oh, I know why you want to be a guest on a Grumpcast. Because you think you'll get downloaded by someone with lots of money and your whole life will change. Well, let me tell you, media executives don't need guest hosts. Yeah, well, they haven't heard me. You clicked left. But what if you clicked right? What then? What's that? What's on my back? Make the choice again, Richard, and change your mind. Click right. I'm clicking. Well, let me tell you, media executives don't need guests, hosts. Yeah, suppose you're right. Click right and change the world. Something that was very formative for me was that in 1979, I started going to secondary school, and one evening on the way home, I was in Leeds Station uh, in the newsagents, and I saw issue one of Doctor Who Weekly, and I thought, wow, well, this is, this is very exciting, uh, and so I, 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 I fore, forewent, <laughs> foregoed, I don't know, my, my usual sweets, and, and, and shelled out 12p on the comic instead, and uh, so I guess began uh, a more detailed obsession with Doctor Who. I mean, uh, at that point I was reading the Target books, but but somehow I think this was the, the you know a deeper path towards you know, you know true fandom. So, uh, how did you get involved with Doctor Who Weekly? Uh, that was another instance of people you know deciding they wanted to dump their workload on us <laughs> <laughs> because Starburst magazine at the time was published by Marvel Comics in the UK. Uh-huh. And the editor of that was a very astute chap called Des Skin. Mm. And very rapidly during the 70s, he realised there was a great deal of interest in Doctor Who. So started writing to 
the BBC saying, look, you know, we'd like to do some Doctor Who features in Snarburst. Hmm. Um, can we come and talk to you about uh, and answer questions that our readers would be interested in? And uh, the production office at the time thought, oh, well, hang on, if it's technical stuff, well, we can't do it. So, oh, the, the, the Appreciation Society can answer all that stuff for you. So I started getting phone calls from Marvel initially with the idea of some of their staff writers coming along and picking my brains and raiding the, the photo collection for uh, for articles they were going to do about Doctor Who. Hmm. And I think about two or three of these uh, features had been done before suddenly I got the clarion call from, from Des himself saying, oh, do you want to come down and talk about, you know, perhaps something greater to do with, with Doctor Who? And it was that, yeah. That's that first thing about always be wary of somebody who says that there's a free lunch on it. It's free lunch. Because what, what Des was talking about on the recommendation of, of his staff writers was uh, someone who could provide the cheaper uh, alternative to the comic strips for this publication he's proposing. You know, would I be prepared to do text features telling the story of Doctor Who, you know, for a wider readership than had been done arguably for the hundreds strong appreciation society to do it for a thousand strong order, uh, readership for, for a magazine um, so mm. i sort of said yes thinking oh you know possibly could fit this in one day a week or something like that well uh, as with all things you suddenly found out uh, it was swings and roundabouts in terms of what you were able to do because the big problem with the, the magazine at the very beginning was although they got a contract to, to do it um, they had very little Marvel had very little resources to do it with. Mm. And if you're going to tell the story of Doctor Who, well, you're going to need photographs and a lot of sort of, you know, information to go in there. And so <laughs> you're almost going to the fan base, people like Richard, like like Jan, Steve, etc., and saying, God's sake, can we, can we borrow some black and white photographs? Because otherwise this magazine's going to have an awful lot of, of, of blank spaces in it. So. Yeah. Uh, until lines of communication got established, um, probably more when John Nathan Turner came along. Yeah, you were trying to, to basically put into the magazine stuff that uh, originally had been acquired for for use by the Appreciation Society, but without it, uh, I don't think uh, Doctor Weekly would have lasted very long indeed. Mm. But last it did, and it, it, it had a couple of uh, perilous moments when they. Sales did start slipping, which nearly always happened when the show went off the air for right. you know, six months or so. The first decision of thinking, oh, well, let's see if we can make it more appealing to really young kids. Yes. Particularly the kids who buy comics. Uh, that almost got to the point when the, the, the plug was almost ready to be pulled before they thought, well, how about if we make it monthly and yes. do it more for the sort of older age group type of people that seem to be in the society? And see if what that does and you know, luckily that was the right decision to make because after that sales did pick up to the point where it was both sustainable and commercially viable to continue as a as a monthly publication and of course it's it's never really looked looked back on but from, the, from that day onwards yes it wasn't an easy fight because uh, of course that the bbc were very unhappy about doctor monthly initially because They'd never really come across a magazine. They'd licensed an awful lot of external companies to do publications about Doctor Who, you know, poster mags and yeah. uh, specials and all that sort of thing. But something which 
would editorially criticise what the BBC was doing, that would preview without necessarily, you know, entirely being bound by press releases. That that you know, that was the sort of thing that only BBC publications did, like Radio Times or The Listener. Hmm. So hmm. It, it was there were instances, particularly when errors crept in, and yes, they did. When the BBC came down quite heavily, and uh, there were a few points when you thought, "Gosh, you know, we're we going to find ourselves." Uh, having the the rug pulled away, but luckily it didn't happen. And uh, for all the p things people have said about John Nathanson, one of the things he was uh, very good about was seeing the the fact that the Doctor Monthly was a very good vehicle for publicising the program. And he did stick his neck out on a couple of times to uh, to make sure it it did continue. So it wasn't an easy path, but uh, hopefully it laid all the the paving stones that have enabled uh, all the good work that's continued from those years, well, right up to the present day, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so, so I think one of, the, one of the early things I remember that I particularly cottoned onto was as a fan in those days, I mean, there were, there, there were no repeats of any sort of the old material, and other than the Target books, it was very hard for someone certainly living in Yorkshire and pro probably living anywhere in the UK to, to, to see and understand what those episodes were like. So I think those those synopses or, or accounts of the original stories with the photographs, they kind of, you know, it was it was a way of, of reliving those early stories in, you know, perhaps the the most vivid way that, that, that we could at, at that time. So, yeah, I, I, I think that was one of the things that, that kind of brought that, um, uh, how interesting the series was. It was a great period of discovery on so many fronts because you know, you'd had the Target books, which you know, they were massively sold as you know, the generation that had grown up with Doctor Who's thought to, to relive what they'd, they'd gone through. Hmm. Even when, you know, photographs, for God's sake, for a long time, there were no Doctor Who photographs apart from the occasional one that appeared in the Radio Times. So mm -hmm. suddenly to have a platform where photographs were appearing on a regular basis, you know, yeah. it's, it's seen as just de rigueur now, but at the time, if you picked up an old edition of a Famous Monsters of Filmland in 1976 and saw three photographs from the first William Hartnell Dalek story that that was you know that was cause for celebration <laughs> that was a means of bringing the past yes and it's all become iterative as you know gradually videos started to come on stream you know now you look at what's being offered in terms of being able to relive Doctor Who e even the obscure ones the ones where a story like the Macro Terror which is missing you've got something now which gives you a pretty darn good impression of what was shown at the time, and it will certainly do hmm. until the point at which, uh, you know, hopefully, the macro terror surfaces somewhere in the world. One hopes it will someday. So, uh, did, did the ma magazine going monthly make it any easier for you to, to have a, a bit longer to write, or did it just mean there was more that you had to write, so it was just as bad? Uh, in initially, yes, because uh, doing it on a weekly slog, you know, given that in some cases there could be five uh, five Mondays in the month. And yeah. Originally, when I used to devote time to doing them weekly, suddenly all you had to do was almost worry about only doing you know, a couple more articles over the base of month. That was initially easier. But again, Doctor Who chews up material so fast, hmm. and there's always a hunger for, for, for something new. And as, as season 18 came along, of course, 
the editor Alan McKenzie and Paul Neary said, well, you know, hey, we, you know, it'd be a great idea if we trail the shows that are on coming up on television. So suddenly you're on this big hunt to try and find graphic material, a bit of information about uh, the Leisure Hive and what's going to go into it. Um, and then afterwards they say, well, you know, as a magazine we should kind of print what, what we thought of the, of the episode. So suddenly a review is required. So, and, oh, by the way, did we tell you we're going up from 36 pages to 44? <laughs> oh, joy, yeah, no problem, <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> okay, no, I really didn't need to worry about sleeping at night. Yeah. Really quite well. Let's see what we can do yeah. about that. So yeah. it was all that business. And, and again, because at the time the BBC was very taciturn about what he was going to tell you, I suppose it hasn't changed that much these days. Yeah. Um, you were always trying to see if you could find something out to, to, to fill the pages, you know, at least try and get to see a copy of the script, even if you knew you couldn't blow any... Well, you wouldn't want to blow any big surprises or be showstoppers in there. But at least you wanted a flavour of what the, the production was going to look like, uh, what the what the, uh, what the flavour of it would be to, to try and give it a trail. Mm. And I suppose the plus point of that was eventually you know, John Nathan Turner realised, yeah, review's probably a good idea, but can I have a bit more of an input to them, please, rather than you just you know, raid, trying to raid my uh, <laughs> raid illicit copies of scripts you might have found at a recording session one day. So ultimately that worked well and good because you started getting far more in the way of, uh, of a, a, a chance to, to look at what the programme was, was going to be and more importantly you see the sale, what, what they were selling that story on, you know, what were the high points, was it going to be the, the guest stars of the week, was it going to be where it was filmed or anything particular was going to happen that you could cryptically allude to without sort of blowing the gaff. Hmm. So although it's... It became hard work. Once once he started to try and get the, the sausage machine working, you could start to rely, hopefully, on on stuff turning up that you could use to try and um, pull the pull the pages together before the editor started threatening you with death for missing <laughs> deadlines. Like you, happened on a few times. <laughs> did the fee go up when the page count went up? Did it help? <laughs> <laughs> Still got bags of KP nuts in the attic now, which, which tells you what the salary was like. Vastly <laughs> up since. I mean, it's, uh, it's <laughs> Doctor's so many ways. Doctor is something that you end up doing for love. I mean, you look yeah. at all the work people like the restoration team do. Yes. If they were doing it commercially, they would be asking Spielberg le uh, levels of, of recompense for what they do. Yeah. With Doctor Who, they would sit there, you know, silly hours in the morning. Just to make sure the extras on a particular disc were going to be the absolute best the world has ever seen. I'd love to see it because from the soundtrack, and maybe it's just because I'm so familiar with this, mm. but I don't. It seems fundamentally to be the Troughton Doctor. I don't know, 80, 90 percent there, quite yeah. quite mm. early on to me. Yeah, I was I was watching it with Mrs. Morris, and she picked up even just from the soundtrack that she thought. Patrick was playing it very differently. Hmm. We'll just watch just after Fury. But I think I think it's a combination really because his performance does it does lose some of its sharpness later on in season six. I don't think it's mm -hmm. unfair to say mm -hmm. that, is it? Because no, he, I think was, that's true. he was fed up with it by that point mm -hmm. as well. So if you if you compare the two ends of his portrayal, even if you compare the underwater menace with I don't know, um, Seeds of Death, there's a big difference. Hmm. But I just I'd like to know if if his 
facial mannerisms, his physical, his movement would mm. exaggerate the manic side of this regenerated doctor in a way that perhaps just here in the soundtrack doesn't. Mm. Because when we hear about all the extremes to what she wanted to push it, it doesn't quite live yeah. up to it, does it? Yes, I wondered that too, because I, because I agree with you. I, d- I don't think it's evident to me in the soundtrack that it's all that different. But, but, but as you say, you, you feel like th- there's, a lot, there's a lot of discussion about how it's a very manic performance. There's a lot of still photographs where he's pulling some rather extreme faces, a lot of gurning. <laughs> and I think even in those tiny little cine clips, there are a few. But, I mean, they're all, they're all very early on. Mm. I think that's all in the first quarter of an hour where you'd, you'd expect it to be. So I'm really not expecting to see very much change over the next... Because, by and large, he's being the Doctor with moments of eccentricity rather than vice versa. Mm. And I think the only thing that changes is the um, cut of his trousers. <laughs> they're, I think they, they're taking in his baggy trousers oh, yes. more each week than he is his performance. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I thought you were going to have another go at um, Charles Norton there for having uh, <laughs> removed the checks. Oh dear. Well, you know, the doctor doesn't even wear his woolly hat in Fury from the Deep, so I'm not finished on people <laughs> taking liberties. <laughs> oh God, really? I haven't seen it yet, so. Okay, well, we won't spoil the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tell you what, what it occurred to me about this story was Brexit, right? It seems to me that, that Hensel is the Cameron figure who who doesn't really see his demise coming. Mm. He kind of understands that there are that there are rebels in the in the camp, but he doesn't really see them as that big a threat and he's astonished really when when Bregan turns on him. Mm. And then of course you've also got the this thing where the you know the original rebels, I suppose, you know, Janley and her and her bunch are, are sort of overpowered then by the ultras with Bregan and his guards who kind of take take over and sort of they're using that as, as their means to take to get power and then ultimately of course it doesn't really matter about any of that because the coronavirus turns up in the in the uh, form of the Daleks and, and wipes <laughs> everything out anyway uh, and it just seems like a perfect allegory for our times so mm. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to figure out who that makes Janley but um, <laughs> Chris Whitty. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, interesting. The thing that struck me going over it was it's it's interesting that they they went back to Whitaker to do this, and I'm mm. I'm not sure. So so Spooner suddenly. I mean, I was I was surprised. Yeah, um, this is the classic something who lack of research thing. So Spooner <laughs> Spooner crops up as a script editor, which made me go yeah. do a double take and think, hang on. Yeah. So is that a courtesy title because he'd done a rewrite? Yeah, pol- I polish well. at least. Jerry Davis is yes. If you look at it, Jerry is his story editor, isn't he, Jerry Davis? Mm. Which is, I think is is the is the standard title for the Times, isn't mm. it? Story is editor it? rather than script editor. The theory goes that that the main rewrite from Spooner is episode one. And he, and he removes some of the longers in the TARDIS that right. were in the original Whitaker script. Okay. Although, I mean, he's he's credited in the animation on all six episodes, so whether he polishes all of them as well, I, mm. uh, I don't know. It's it's just interesting because it it strikes me it's it's very much it's 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 a story that's written by someone who remembers you know who knows their Dalek history as such, and and I guess I mean, Whitaker. Would, did Whitaker write the space travel guide as well, the Dalek Outer Space book or whatever it was called? No, the um... I've got a feeling he might have done. Mm. 
Um, but it very much it because you know, it has nods to and both of his stories do because obviously with the you know in Evil we go back to the Dalek City and the Doctor knows the way into the Dalek City because he's done it all before. Mm. And and in this case we have you know stuff like the static and I was just thinking about how it all relates to the oh yes yeah and Whitaker would have been steeped in his he would have had some knowledge of what the the canon of Dalek history such as it was at the time was that we had the Dalek invasion of Earth once and so he yeah. seems to be going back and saying well these must be from before because we have the static issue and he picks up on static which goes back to goes back to yes. the very first sto- Dalek story whatever yeah. we're going to call it this week yes and you've made me twig of course that he's only just finished writing an exciting adventure hasn't he a year before oh I suppose like he that. has yeah good point so it's interesting that yeah we go back to we go back to that that static is the is the solution so in some ways it is there's a bit of a bit of a reworking at least in the solution to the you know it's the same resolution as as the Daleks isn't it hmm. and I guess that that's the thought that okay this is pre Dalek invasion of Earth pre 2165 or whenever we're going to say you know if you want to play that game because because the colonists don't know don't know what the Daleks are. Yes, well, allegedly, ah, according point. to the advert for, on BBC One, it's set in twenty twenty. Yes, mm, yeah. I thought I thought so. Mm. Yeah, Mrs. Morris asked me, and I told her, and she thought I was ribbing her. So, in July nineteen eighty one, I went along with my dad and and a friend of mine, and we watched the final day of the Headingley Test match which was the day after both of them had, had carted the Australians around the ground. And it was the day that Bob Willis then skittled them out and, and started off that Australian Ashes series that, that so caught the, the nation. Well, it may not have caught Paul and Giles, but certainly you know, for, for many of us it did. And then just, just a few months later, they're filming this in October 81. I'd persuaded my dad that he, he would take me to, the, to see the Headingley mm. test, but he could only make it for the last day. Um, so on the fourth day, I was, I was very glum because England were, were, were falling apart and threatening to lose them, the, the match on the fourth day. And uh, when when both and Dilly had their mm-hmm. heroic, so I mean I was just delighted about the fact that they'd managed to make it last into the fifth day, which meant we could go along and watch. Yeah, it, not really imagining that that uh, they were going to um, win. The well, I mean, some of your listeners probably haven't got a clue about dogs, that cricket. Obviously, some of you probably haven't got a clue about cricket. So, um, to give it some context, I mean, it's, it's a numbers game, really, isn't it? But I think England got 174, Australia scored over 400, and then England yeah. had lost half the team in the second time round and were nowhere near getting enough runs to make Australia bat again. Um, and if you can't understand that, well, let me tell you that the odds of England winning the match were 500 to 1, according to bookmakers. And actually, a couple of cheeky Aussie Larrikin players um, actually had a bet on England to win the game. It's quite a big scandal about that, actually. Um, they gave the bus driver a tenner to slip on England, you know, just in case. I've actually no, no belief that they wanted England to win or, or whatever. That was far from it. But, um, yeah, they had a cheeky little bet. And so that's sort of come to light over the years. But, yeah, 500 to 1 is probably the, you know, the greatest, one of the greatest comebacks. I can say one of the two greatest comebacks in cricket history or test cricket history sure yeah and so and so this story i mean it may may already have been written by then i'm not sure but certainly you know shortly after that is is when they do the recording and, and there's 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 certainly an echo 
of that Headingley match in the way that you know Lord Cranley's side are, are, are almost down and out, and then along comes a doctor to smash it all around the park, and then then also uh, skittle the opposition. So I wonder if if that was very heavily on Terence Studley's mind as he was writing this, or if it's just entirely coincidental that uh, he's given uh, Davison the uh, the sort of Bothman Willis roles. Spot on, yes. So I you know wonder whether Terry Terence Studley took inspiration from that. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think he could well have done, couldn't he? he I don't know. I mean, wh- when would the scripts have been written, I suppose? No, it was well, filmed in October. Filmed in October, yeah. yeah so could have been yeah, written well have been. in the summer. It's, it's, it's just it's hard to know. I don't know whether Terence Dudley was a cricket fan or, or, or what have you. But uh, no, you're absolutely right, aren't you? That um, I suppose the Doctor could have been Dilly in a way, couldn't he? I'm again yes. towards the end and then hit a 50. <laughs> He certainly had a fit, um, yes. an array of sort of slogs and what have you. I mean, I, I interviewed um, Peter Davison for, for my magazine, The Cricketer. He said he, he liked cricket, but judging by his technique, I, I wouldn't say he was sort of a, a, a brilliant cricketer, really. But it's obviously ha- sort of handy, you know, knew, knew how to hold a bat and so forth. Um, but it was all sort of slogs to, to leg, the leg side. and <laughs> It wasn't sort of cultured stroke play of the like, you know, we, we, we've seen from... Ian Bell and people like that over the years, you know, he's just retired. Mm. But it, yeah, it was sort of whole hearty hitting, mm. and in the in the bowling was um, he he didn't really use his front arm. Bowlers use their front arm, get it nice and high, then mm. the back arm comes through with the ball. But the doctor wasn't using his front arm; he just used his back arm. So I, I would say he, I I wouldn't have thought he was a particularly good club cricketer, but but he obviously liked the game and uh, and knew the game, yeah. And it was it was great fun uh, interviewing him about Black Orchid, but um, yeah, um, mm-hmm. Ron Jones was the director, wasn't he? Um, That's right. Yeah, he had yeah. a very checkered record in his Doctor Who director. I mean, I, I love Frontios; it's one of my favourite stories, actually. So that was a yeah. good one, but um, he he did some other stuff that wasn't so good. I mean, I suppose he couldn't help Time Flight that no. they were trying to recreate a prehistoric plane on in BBC Studios or. Whatever. And Concord and all that, but um, yeah, I mean, one of the major failings of, of the cricket match was that um, the Doctor hit a four, and they signalled a wide. I'm shocked. You tell me, <laughs> you tell me, there are aspects of Black Orchid that don't quite hold up. <laughs> okay. So uh, a four is this motion here with with a finger across like that, and a, yeah. and a wide is just the two arms out like a scarecrow. So um, <laughs> obviously, no one on set was uh, on hand to, to sort of point this out. I mean, I would have thought Peter Davison would have done, but uh, maybe he was busy or something, but doing something else, having his Harlequin costume fitted. <laughs> yeah. He was chuffed, though, he told me, that um, they left the camera rolling when he was bowling, and he, he, you know, he, he didn't think that the camera was filming, that they were going to edit it all, so he'd run into bowl, and then they'd sort of just throw the ball at the stumps to... And and he ran in and bowled, and he genuinely bowled the guy out. He hit the stumps, and he was thrilled but initially disappointed that he didn't think the cameraman was filming it. And he said, "You didn't get that, did you get that?" And he, and he did, and he was overjoyed that um, that it was actually sort of authentic. So yeah. yeah, and then Lord Cranley, isn't it? Lord Cranley says, "Do um, you played like the master?" And of course, the doctor's horrified, thinking of his arch enemy, you know, from Gallifrey. But um, they say, "Oh yes, the master, W. G. Grace." 
and the Doctor's relief. But actually, that was another faux pas as well, because W.G. Grace wasn't the master. It was Jack Hobbs was the master. It was known as the master, the, the legendary, high-scoring Surrey batsman, Jack Hobbs. So not the all-rounder, yeah. W.G. Grace. So that was another little error that probably 99.3% of the audience didn't pick up on. But <laughs> sados like me noticed it, or maybe not noticed it at the time, but certainly noticed it subsequently. There's quite a lot of time given over to the cricketing sequence, narratively, especially when they've only got 50 minutes. Mm. You'd think you'd think they'd be jumping straight into the story and getting going with things, but instead... Yeah. And it's halfway through the story rather than at the beginning. Mm. So, you, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think what, another thing we, we, were, we were going to talk about was Peter Davison's costume. And, and yeah. you know, as, you, as you were saying earlier, he, he, he picks it out in Castro Valva from the, from the pavilion in the TARDIS. But it, it's sort of, it's kind of cricket-ish, but it's not exactly a cricket costume. No, it was like, unlike any cricket costume that's ever been worn. In fact, it reminded me of that line from Jonathan Agnew. But England had a jumper a few years ago that was absolutely awful. It wasn't like any cricket jumper, maybe horizontal vertical lines and then the bottom half was horizontal lines and had a big red line alongside it it looked just bizarre it was made by adidas and um i suppose the doctor's costume really wasn't really i mean it what it isn't the the famous i spy cartoon of the edwardian cricketer i mean the jumper was authentic to start with i think it was um red white and brown or stripes or something it looked like a genuine proper cricket jumper they they got rid of it and replaced it with this big one with red and black lines by the time of Fontios, the season 21, maybe. Just, you know, even the cricket, even the jumper wasn't authentic anymore. The coat was clearly a costume. Not a horrible thing by any stretch, was it? But um, it, very sort of tailored, wasn't it? And um, the trousers yeah. were, were sort of striped and, yeah, yeah. anything like it, really. They could have swapped the vegetable about occasionally, couldn't they? It could have been a leak one week and, uh, <laughs> and an artichoke. <laughs> All these missed opportunities. Was it John Nathan Turner who claims the inspiration to have um, come up with the idea? He said he, he reckoned he saw a picture of Peter Davison playing in a charity cricket match when they were playing when they were filming All Creatures Great and Small. But Peter told me that um, he, you know he thought it was his idea. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> but he's happy to let. Um, John Nathan Turner come up with that, yeah. No, it, it worked out quite well, didn't it? I think Philip Hinchcliffe was saying, I think I remember reading a magazine interview, that he was asked what he would have done with the Doctor if he'd carried on. And he quite liked the sort of Brian said revisited sort of image of the Doctor as an Edwardian cricketer or um, mm-hmm. what have you. So, yeah, no, seemed to work out fairly well, didn't it? Not as wacky as sort of Colin Baker's costume later. Yeah, indeed. So so I suppose at least with, with, with Davison's costume you've got the sense that people could have put those things together whereas clearly with Colin Baker it is a costume that has been designed No, it's horrendous wasn't it it was just awful terrible production error wasn't it felt so sorry for him because I did get to interview Colin Baker as well for the cricket and he also is a big cricket fan yeah possibly more than Peter Davison actually so the cricket thing might have quite worked out quite well for Colin Baker so that's the thing that I always remember seeing a picture of of Colin Baker in cricket whites hmm. um, around the time when he was cast, and that was the that was around the time, like a behind the scenes. Yeah, I know what picture. you mean. I I could have sworn there was one of him around the time he was cast. Yeah, and there was a story that famous story of him was that uh, he 
when JNT took him in to speak to, I think, David Reed, John Reed, David Reed, who was the head of serials for the BBC, to sort of damn JNT's choice as the doctor. Colin was a bit miffed because he was listening to the England-India World Cup match, 1983. and But when he got into the David Reed's office, to his great relief, David Reed was watching the match on his telly and they just didn't, they didn't talk about Doctor Who very much at all. They just talked about cricket. So they hit it off and that helped uh, Colin get the job. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, so sometimes it, it, it that kind of thing pays off. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, what you know and who you know and all that. Yeah, I don't, I'm sure he wouldn't have not got it anyway, but uh, it sort of helped him seal the deal. Yeah, yeah. Peter Davison later played um, another cricketer in, in Midsummer Murders, actually, he was telling me about. So, and he, he got annoyed about that, that uh, he was he was actually intervening on that occasion, telling people to hold the bat the right way and so on. He played the captain of a, of a team, Jeff Towler, his name. He didn't actually get to play any cricket, but, but it, the story was about cricket, yeah. Yeah, in in the um, Blu-ray set for season nineteen, there was a return to the to the locations where they recorded Black Orchid, mm. and one of the things they did was to wheel out Davison once again, you know, padded up, but but now in his sixties, I mean, he could barely lay a bat on a ball. So, but, but I mean, I guess it was probably a long time since he played by that point. intriguing for instance when when they were doing the animated versions of i think it's power of the daleks yeah and of course they have to trim it down for, for animation you can't show everything it'd be far too expensive but there's a bit you can still hear on the soundtrack to part one a sort of bang bang in one of the scenes in the in the prison cell uh-huh. and oh that's the bit where Trouton's throwing the orange against the wall like Steve McQueen in, in Great Escape. But uh-huh. yeah, unless you saw it, you don't know that that bit's there because right. it's not in the script. Uh-huh. It was just a little bit of business that had been worked out, presumably between Trouton and Christopher Barry, when they when they were shooting that. Episode. Yeah, 